All right, good evening, everybody. Good to be with you tonight. I wasn't expecting to be with you again so soon, but super glad to be here. Um, Eric will be back with you next week. Uh, and a couple further announcements. Actually, the next two weeks, this class is going to meet over in uh, the Great Hall. So the youth is going to be in here for a panel discussion. So the next two weeks, over in the Great Hall. Um, it will be streamed. So for those of you watching online, know that we will be streaming, yes, in the Great Hall. And um, next week also will be the last week of Second Peter. And then Eric will be starting the book of Philemon with you, which um, is what the youth will be doing. So we'll be kind of doing that to uh, finish out the, uh, the year, I guess. So, well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 to 13 tonight. At Second Peter, chapter three, verses one to thirteen, and Peter writes, "This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all." that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. <clears throat> but according to his promise, we are awaiting, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray together. Father, we do come in the name of your son, Jesus, in the name of, of the eternal word of God, Lord. Grateful that you have brought us here tonight, thankful that you have given us this word, that we might be stirred up by way of reminder by Peter now to cultivate all things that we need for life and godliness, things that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have fellowship with you, Father. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you uh, work your power by your Spirit so that we might become one with you in Jesus Christ, Lord. We pray that tonight you would um, just help us to cultivate a greater love for you, a greater desire for you, Lord, and to grow deeper into an awareness of the many ways in which you make yourself known to us in creation and by your patience. And Lord, help us to then wait well for the day in which you will bring a new heavens and a new earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll own it. I'm kind of a nerd and I absolutely love the game of chess. I love everything about it. The game takes strategy, calculation. It takes a long time to cultivate the necessary skills in order to play well. And I learned these uh, skills by playing the game of chess with my dad growing up. We used, there was a period of time, actually, when we played chess every single night. And by no means am I great at the game, but I'll admit I'm decent. 
I'm, I'm, I'm decent. Most of the novices that I play, I, I, I beat. And uh, most of the time, I feel somewhat in control. And I love everything about the game. So I'm always up for a good chess game. And one of, that's one of the reasons why I was thrilled to meet my friend Roberto uh, shortly after moving uh, to Louisville for seminary. A few months into our friendship, uh, Roberto and I discovered that we both had this common love for the game of chess. And so naturally, we were like, well, we have to find time to play. And if there are any uh, chess players out there, I, I certainly don't presume that there are. But if there are, you know, you know how exciting this can be. Because not only is it rare to find somebody that likewise plays the game of chess, it's, it's even rarer to find somebody that uh, is also decent and you can have a good game with instead of just, you know, have it be a one-sided match the whole time. So needless to say, Roberto and I were thrilled and we decided, hey, we need to carve out like a Saturday morning to play a game because we know that this is going to be a long game and we want to just make time for it and we'll do that after finals, of course. So we sat down for the game and things proceeded... Uh, really in ways that I expected. The game was thoughtful. It was full of interesting moves and, and traps and well-thought-out plans. It was pretty much uh, anything that anybody could want in a chess game. Throughout the game, I felt in control, felt like I had the proper analysis, uh, thought that it was, I was going to win. And two hours in, it's totally even. And again, the game was proceeding as many other games in the past had done before. It was unfolding like a regular chess game. But for those of you that know the game of chess, you know that things can change in an instant. And all of a sudden, my game with Roberto was over. Checkmate. And I lost. I went from feeling totally confident in the ordinary unfolding of the game of chess to finding out just three moves later that I was sorely, sorely mistaken. I sat there shocked. And Roberto smiled at me and said, I had you beat from the beginning. So we discussed the game together naturally, and it became clear that he did. He had me beat. He was in control from the beginning, and I failed to recognize that the entire game was set into motion under the, the guise of the genius of my friend. His win at the end simply revealed what had been true all along, that he was in that he governed the entire game from the beginning, and I missed it. I was totally ignorant of his genius, which was sitting right in front of me. My certainty then about the end of the game was misguided because I failed to see what was true from the beginning. But if we take this a step further and ask the more general question about certainty, was, it, was, was that the main problem I had in this game, was being certain that I would win? No. Because certainty itself is, is, a, is a good thing, right? Roberto was certain he was going to win, and he was right. I was certain I was going to win, and I was wrong. And so my issue was that I had a misplaced certainty, and my misplaced certainty then affected all the decisions that I made in the game it affected my confidence. I proceeded somewhat arrogantly only to find out I was totally wrong. And at the end, it, 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 my misplaced certainty messed up my emotions, my thinking, everything. Well, in our text this evening, Peter makes us come face to face with the notion of certainty. After reminding us about the purpose of his letter in verses 1 to 3, which is, you know, that we might uh, be stirred up by way of reminder for all, by all Christ has done for us. Peter gives two reasons for why we should be certain about the coming of Christ. And then he calls us to consider how such certainty should affect our behavior. And so our time together, we're going to explore these, these four main sections that come, out, that come out of this text. We're going to first briefly review Peter's purpose in verses 1 to 3. 
And then we're going to consider the two reasons that Peter gives us for having confidence in Christ's uh, coming. Verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 to 10, respectively. And lastly, we'll consider what sort of people we ought to be in light of such certainty. And the main thing Peter wants us to take away from this text tonight is this. Resolve to live confidently unto Jesus Christ because he is the ruler of creation and the eternal God who makes all things new. So let's start by reviewing the summary and purpose of this book. Verses 1 to 3. I'll be brief here because in many ways we've, we've kind of covered this material already. As I stated uh, in the introductory talk a few weeks ago, the purpose of the letter is in verses 1 to 3. And we see the outline of this book reflected in that purpose. Peter's stirring us up by way of reminder. That's what we see in chapter 1. Right? Where Peter calls us to, to focus on all things that Christ has given us for life and godliness by his promise, in order that we might uh, become partakers of the divine nature. He there gives us concrete examples of what life and godliness looks like back in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. And he does this, again, so that we might remember that our ultimate purpose is to have fellowship with God. Peter also, um, in chapter 1, talks about remembering the words of the apostles and prophets. And that's what he's saying here in chapter 2. He's stirring us up by, or in ver, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, sorry. Uh, he's stirring us up to remember the words of the apostles and prophets. And we saw this, right, two weeks ago when we discussed the transfiguration and how that pointed to Jesus' heavenly glory, which confirmed the message of the Old Testament. So that's what we see in chapter 1. Why is Peter stirring us up by a way of reminder? Well, he's, he, one of the reasons he's doing that is so that we avoid false teaching. And that's what John covered last week in chapter 2. There, John helpfully uh, helped, helped us see that it was the main issue with the, scoff, with the false teachers and scoffers there is that they rejected the claim that Jesus Christ had on their life. Which is, again, another theme we've been highlighting all along. It's when, you, when we reject the claim Christ has on our life, we start to exhibit all the behaviors that characterize the false teachers as described in chapter 2. Whereas, when we accept the claim that Christ has on our lives, we grow into life and godliness that we see in chapter 1. And so there's a clear distinction there. This again, chapter one, it's, it's because we recognize Christ has a claim on our life that we pursue these things. And again, it's that, it's that recognition that then stirs us up and propels us to good works in Christ. So now then, as we get to chapter three, Peter takes us a step further into some of these uh, themes and ideas. And what he's asking here is, is about the content of the message. In other words, why should we be certain about Christ's return and the call to pursue life and godliness in light of this promise? I mean, Peter's already argued why we should, be, why we should listen to him, right, as an apostle. But now he's, saying, now, now he's saying, why should you be certain in the message itself? And this is where we get to the two reasons that he talks about. In verses 4 to 7, the reason why we should be certain that Christ is coming is because Christ is the ruler of creation. And in verses 8 to 10, he tells us that we should be certain about Christ's coming because Christ is the eternal and therefore patient God. So, let's dive into these two sections. We'll begin with verses 4 to 7, talking about Christ and creation. So, in verse 4, we get to what the scoffers say. What are they saying? Where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We should note in passing here that uh, this formula of where is, it might seem kind of like a, a throwaway, but it actually harkens us back to the Old Testament with the scoffers that were scoffing at God's, pro, uh, God's prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where they said, you know, where is God's justice? Where is God's word? So in effect, this formula, it's, it's a denial of, of God being present with his people. And so when Peter is, is 
kind of pointing us back to the Old Testament in this way. He's again identifying himself with the Old Testament prophets and showing that this message that he's going to give in the face of scoffers is the same message that has been true from the beginning of the Old, of the Old Testament. The message the Old Testament confirms, the message the transfiguration confirms, and the message he's giving now. And so identifying himself with, it, with them in this way does lend itself to Peter's authority, but it also shows us that the, the, the scoffers here are denying the Lord is going to come back by saying, you know, where is the promise of his coming? Just like they denied his word and justice before. In the second half of verse 4 then, we see the reason why the scoffers make this denial. It's, it's interesting, right? They actually appeal to the stability and order of creation as evidence for the fact that all things will continue as they are, right? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They think that there's no way there can be some sort of dramatic return, right? Because obviously creation just is going on business as normal. It's stable and it's sufficient. And if it is self-sufficient and stable on its own, then that means it's not under the judgment of Christ, right? That's what, that's what, the, that's what the scoffers are saying. So we, we have to really follow kind of the logic of Peter's response here. It, it's kind of, it can get kind of weird at first. If, if As I'm sure you know, is uh, reading it this week probably. So let's first kind of pay attention to how he responds to that claim and then kind of back up and see how this relates to Jesus Christ, as I've suggested. So how does Peter respond? Verses 5 and 6. The scoffers overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter responds by paralleling God's work in creation with the destruction that came in the flood. Genesis 1, Genesis 6 to 9. So what he's saying is God's going to bring about destruction and judgment in the same way that he brought about creation. Right? In Genesis 1, we read that God created through water and by his word. And a few chapters later, as I've already alluded to, he destroys the earth by water and word to execute judgment over sin. Which is really what the future judgment is about, executing judgment over sin. So in other words, creation and judgment are rooted in the very same power. Namely, the power of God. And so the history of God's destruction in the flood actually serves as evidence and as, as a witness to the power that God exercises in the creation and the sustaining of the world. And so, get this, the judgment on creation, right, of, of the flood and what's going what's to come in the future points us back to what was true in the beginning. In the same way that Roberto's win that seemed out of nowhere in our chess game that I was confident in was evidence of the fact that he was in control of the game all along. And therefore, Peter says, it's erroneous to appeal to the doctrine of creation and its order and regularity as evidence for the fact that God's not going to return because it's the same power. So let's press this even a little bit further here. So hang with me. We need to understand a bit. We can, we can get a fuller picture of this when we think about how God exercises his power in creation and judgment here displayed in this text. Peter's telling us that God works through created realities, right? And that these realities are governed by his word. So God working through cr created realities Governed by his word. And again, he's drawing on the flood to illustrate this point. So, 
just to back up for a second, we need to note that when Peter, uh, when he says that the world was created out of water, he's not, he's not saying that water was some kind of pre-existent thing that God used to create. That's, that's the mark of secular philosophies, and we could talk about that a lot. But the point here, what, what Peter's referring to is what uh, classic Christian theology has, has uh, noted as what's called the work of distinction. So creation oftentimes is spoken about in two ways. There's God's initial act of creating out of nothing, where he speaks all things into existence, and then there's God's work of distinction, where he forms the creation that he spoke out of nothing. We see this uh, in Genesis 1 verse 2, right? Where uh, Moses says the earth was without form and void. This is after God, you know, God created all things in the beginning. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Moses then goes on to say in Genesis 1, that the earth came by the separation of the waters or the land came up by the separation of the waters. However, you want to understand that. And so what, what's happening here is God is using water as an instrument in making distinct parts of creation. So Peter then is referring to this work of distinction, showing us that all of created realities are under the power of God's word, which is exactly what, again, we see in Genesis 1. It's bringing us to this, the second thing we kind of need to draw out here is that all of creation is under the behest of God through his word. In this work of distinction, what happens, right? God says, he speaks his word. Let there be light. And there was light. He says, referring to the waters, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And so it was. All things come from the word of God. They're set into motion by the word of God. They're sustained by the word of God. They're governed by the word of God. That's what Peter's drawing us into by pointing to this work of distinction and paralleling it with the flood. We, we just to, I mean, this is Scripture is replete with examples of this. Just to draw out a few, Psalm 34, 4 to 6, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth and all their host. A few verses later in that same Psalm, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. It's in the New Testament too. Hebrews 11, 3, one example, probably the most famous. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, not made out of water and creation out of nothing because creation isn't made out of things that are visible and water is visible. So it becomes clear that neither water nor fire in the future judgment, nor any other element of creation derives its power from itself, but is under the authority of the very word of God. The word of God that we see displayed in creation and in creation out of nothing and in the work of distinction. So st st coming back then when I say, raise the question, well, how does this relate to Christ? How does how is Peter trying to give us confidence in Christ's coming by appealing to creation? It's because Christ is the ruler of creation because Christ is the word of God. Prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything made that was made. Christ not made on the side of God, not on creation, ruling over creation, the very word of God, setting things into motion. How do we know this is referring to Jesus Christ who would ultimately become incarnate later in John's prologue, verse 14. That word that he talked about in the beginning is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word who shows us the very glory from the Father. 
That's in John's gospel. That's exactly what Peter talks about in the transfiguration that we saw two weeks ago. Certainly not a coincidence that in the gospels, Jesus, the word of God, who governs creation, is the one who calms the storms, who heals the sick. It's a testimony of what's been true from the beginning. Throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. So many other examples. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning preeminent or firstborn of the new creation in which we are partakers of. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things through him and for him. He's before all things. They hold all things together. So the very structure of reality itself, this very order of creation that the scoffers think points to the, that, the fact that Jesus won't return is actually a demonstration that Christ is the one who holds all things together. And it's evidence of the fact that the possibility of creation, the stability of creation, owes its marks to the very word of God who partakes of the divine nature with the same knowledge as the Father, the same will, the same power that is exercised and that continues forward after God's initial work of creation. It's not as if he just steps back and lets it go. Particularly, uh, you know, uh, a particularly important passage in this regard is the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, when he says, when, when the author says, he, the word, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the word of his power, the same power that undergirds creation, the same power and the same word that undergirds the impending destruction. Creation itself then, what Peter's pointing us back to, is about Christ because Christ is the creator. All things come into existence by the word of God. All things, all things are sustained by the word of God. And this is precisely then, right, why Peter can say in verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. So just as God, the destruction in Genesis with the flood parallels God's work of creation, so the future destruction likewise parallels God's work of creation. And so again, what the scoffers fail to recognize when they say, well, Christ can't be coming back because creation is just kind of, you know, it's regular. The sun, the sun rises, the sun sets. It's a failure to recognize what's been true from the beginning all along. And because they don't recognize that Christ is the ruler and sustainer of creation, they doubt that he will be the judge of the world. And so when we look back at verse 4 for a second, Reconsider that after having looked at verses 5 through 7. We see the, the really the root issue with these scoffers is that they have a doctrine of creation that is divorced from the reality of Jesus Christ. Again, they think creation points to its own independence and self-sufficiency. Rather, than the self-consistency of God, rather than to the goodness of God. And because, again, they, they have this view of creation, they don't have confidence that there will be a judgment. And at times, I wonder how many of us actually hold the view of the scoffers. Sure, we wouldn't, explicitly deny Christ's coming, right? We'd say we have confidence in that. But do we fail to pay attention to 
or appreciate the glory of God shining forth in creation that's all around us? And do we, do we operate as if we are our own self-sufficient masters or that our business as usual is just that, business as usual, totally oblivious to the reality that w- the reality we're living in is a, re- is a reality given by the very word of God, sustained by his power. Many of us are like I was in my chess game with Roberto, with my head totally in the sand, missing everything that was totally obvious, only to find out that I was wrong. And, and I, I wonder if that sort of posture and disposition is what, again, marks us. You know, I think people are so well-meaning when they say this, and I've said it plenty of times, but I think this this kind of bad view, creation is evidence when we say things like, I really want God to show up in my life. Or, that was a God thing. Or, oh, God really intervened there. Which seems to suggest that the very fact that I'm standing here breathing isn't a God thing? The very fact that we can gather tonight isn't a God thing? And we miss that Jesus Christ invites us into fellowship with himself and with with each other through the the ordinary sustaining of creation in which we we can get a new measure of his goodness and his glory. And we're totally oblivious to that. And what we, f- we fail to realize is that these, what we think are these kind of supernatural or uh, extraordinary events are just pointing us to what's true all the time. That life and creation and all things is under the authority of the word of God. And we miss that. We miss that Christ's gracious presence is what allows us to have a great meal with a friend. We miss that Christ's gracious uh, sustaining of our lives is what allows us again to meet here tonight. We, we miss that uh, Christ's sustaining presence in, enables us to be stirred up by way of reminder, all undergirded by Christ's presence. This is one of the reasons why I I love reading, showing my nerdiness again, like talking about chess before, but I love reading older theologians that are not from our present era. They really got this. And they talk about the, uh, the creation narrative or whatever else, you know. A lot of people say, well, the creation narrative can't, you know, can't really be true because God made light on the first day, but he didn't make the sun and the moon till the fourth day. And the ancient theologians are like, well, duh, that just shows you that like the sun isn't the source of light. It shows you that the sun is under the instrument of the word. That's what the text is pointing us to. Or they talk about, you know, the sun and the moon. Well, God's giving us the sun and the moon in order to teach us that we are like the moon. We are to reflect the light that comes from the source. And it's that kind of posture that not only recognizes or that not only appreciates creation for what it is, but it's, as Peter suggests here, the very way in which we actually remember the future judgment. Right? Because he seems to say that a a bad doctrine of creation is the way you forget the future judgment. And so maybe we don't actually think about the reality of judgment enough because we don't allow ourselves to be drawn into the mystery and beauty of creation by Jesus Christ enough. Because, and in this way, because we don't recognize what is true from the beginning, we struggle to understand what will be 
the evidence of that truth in the end. So we avoid becoming scoffers, according to Peter, in word and deed, by developing eyes to see and ears to hear the word of God shine forth in creation. But we all know that we are weak and finite humans, and we will forget this. And so it can be tempting, right? Even if we try to remember these things, it can be tempting to say, is he really going to come back? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. The world is a mess. Why doesn't God just put an end to this? I mean, if God is God, why would he allow these things to go on? And that's why Peter gives us a second reason for why we should trust or why we should have certainty in the impending judgment. And that is the eternality and patience of God, which we see reflected in verses 8 to 10. In verse 8, Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter here, he's using a simile to draw us up to the eternality of God in so far as is possible with human words. We often do think about eternality as just this, you know, going forever in time, no beginning, no end. And that is true enough, right? But um, one of the issues with that is that we start thinking about God in temporal categories, And while it is true that we do need to recognize that God will continue on forever, eternality is about much more than that. Eternality is about God possessing the fullness of his own life, the fullness of perfection. That's why, again, uh, that's why classic Christian theologians have defined God's eternality not just as not being in time, but having full blessedness of life, similar to the idea of peace that we talked about way back in the introductory night. And it's this fullness of perfection then that sets him apart from created things in time. Now, one of the reasons we know Peter is doing this, and we'll see why this is important in a sec, is because Peter is drawing upon Psalm 90 here when he says, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Psalm 90 perhaps not surprisingly, is, act- is about creation, judgment, and the need to live well in light of creation and judgment. Pretty much the logic of this text. Psalm 90 verse 1 to 4 reads, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, again, this idea of creation out of nothing, God before all those things, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is gone then before creation, lacking nothing in himself. The psalmist then says, verse four, you return man to dust and say, return all children of man for a thousand years is in your, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So, why this idea of God's eternality as possessing the fullness of all things is important is because that's actually what is the basis for God's patience towards us, right? When we, think about this, when we have to be patient with something or when we have to exercise patience, we're often exercising patience in a pursuit of goods that we don't have or a pursuit of something we don't have. You want to you want to gain a certain skill or you're waiting for something to arrive, you don't have it and you have to be patient so you, you know, don't become a jerk, more or less. <laughs> uh, but you, that's, not, that's not how God exercises his patience. Verse 9, the Lord is slow to fulfill his pro- the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient for you, not patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience, then, we kind of see it in this verse, is actually totally for us because he lacks nothing because he's eternal. You see that? 
God doesn't need to gain these things. He has them, but yet he displays patience, which means that his patience ultimately isn't for him, but it's for our good, which is, that's what Peter said, that's the why for God is patient. It's so that we might reach repentance. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is kind of an ironic statement, right? Because the false teachers think that God's patience uh, is evidence that he's not going to come back, whereas God's patience, again, is for our good. It's so that we would repent. It's so that we would cultivate virtue. It's so that we would become partakers of the divine nature. And again, I wonder how many of us are actually like the scoffers in this regard. Presuming upon God's patience or thinking that, you know, God's patience means he's not going to come back. And so therefore, it's not really that big of a deal if we give in to a little sin. God seems far away. He'll forgive us. It's not really that big of a deal if we, you know, gossip a little bit or cheat on something, steal, lie. That's not what God's patience is for. God's patience, as Karl Barth, theologian, says, is a summons to faith. It's a summons for us to come face to face with the reality that God is patient towards us so that we might be made more like God and be ready for the day when he comes back. God's patience then is an act of grace. An act of grace supported by the fact that God needs nothing. He's patient towards us not because he needs us, but he's patient towards us because he desires to have fellowship with us. That's what God's patience is all about. There's a lot of debate, I'm sure people know, surrounding this verse, and we can't really get into that here about, you know, God's, uh, is he talking about, is Peter here talking about uh, just believers or all people? And to be totally honest, that probably needs an elective class, and people have fought over that forever. But what all respectable parties in this debate agree on is that this shows us, at the very least, that repentance and cultivating virtue is the pathway to salvation. And that is undergirded by the fact that God, in his marvelous grace, exercises patience towards us. And patience in this way is one, another one of the ways that God uh, brings about his promises. And so I think we can step back and, and kind of press the question to ourselves. We were talking about it at lunch today. If we're called to imitate Christ, and if Christ is patient towards us so that we might come to faith, so that we might grow and cultivate virtue, what does that then mean in our lives for how we should exercise patience towards others? Are we patient in long-suffering with people that we long, people for whom we long to come to faith? Or do we just get upset that they just don't seem to get it? Well, if we're imitating God's patience, the patience that he's given to us, it seems to put a claim on us to be patient with those in their own journey of faith. Or with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we patient with them and helping them to, to grow in love and in knowledge of God? Or, or are we far too quick to just get frustrated with things that we deem, you know, inappropriate or whatever? Part of this imitation of Christ that we talked about three, four weeks ago at this point seems to suggest then that we should display the same patience towards others as God displays towards us. A patience in which we are summoning others to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But 
we also have to come face to face with the reality that God's not going to be patient forever. Which is exactly what Peter gets to in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Business is not going to be as usual forever. The Lord is going to come back. He's going to show the evil works of creation for what they are or the evil works done in creation for what they are. He's going to expose it and everybody is going to know. There's obviously a ton of conjecture about what uh, the dissolving of heavenly bodies and the dissolving of earth will be, and those debates are important and, and good. You know, whether the creation now is going to be totally annihilated or if it's going to be renewed in the new creation. Most opt for the latter, and I think that's probably right. But while that is important, that actually can obscure the main point that Peter wants us to take away from the impending destruction of creation that he's talking about here. You know, as I talked about earlier, this idea of, of seeing Christ in creation more and more and seeing and learning about from creation the ways in which he works for us is actually extended into this passage or into this text here where the, the destruction that is going to be coming upon creation calls out for its need for renewal should actually remind us about the destruction and corruption in our own hearts. So when we see injustice and wickedness in creation, when we are faced with the reality that the heavenly bodies will burn up under the judgment of God for sin, we should look at those things as a sober reminder that that is the result of our wicked hearts, sinful hearts. And then remember that Christ has renewed us so that we can be agents of peace in going out into this creation, going, growing deeper into it, that's what the impending destruction is supposed to remind us about here. And so Peter then, fittingly, asks us in verse 11, what sort of people ought we to be in light of this reality? Think about that for a second. What sort of person should I be in light of this? What sort of person should you be in light of this? We could even broaden out, what sort of church should we be in light of this? Ought we to exercise vice or virtue? Are, are we to be self-indulgent or self-controlled? Are we to be people of hate or people of love? Are we to go on with our head in the sand going about our work, doing our thing, living without reference to God? Or are we to grow deeper into the divine beauty that's all around us? You know, as I've kind of reflected on this text in my own life this week, I realize that I go astray personally when I am more fixated on uncertainty rather than certainty. So it's not that I would, would deny the future coming of Christ. But I get so focused on all the uncertainties around me and then I spend all my time trying to, you know, bring about uh, the, the outcome I want or avoiding the certain outcome. And what that does, though the pursuit is not bad in itself, what it does oftentimes is it produces these vices that are contrary to the virtues Peter lays out. I have to become impatient, frustrated, discouraged, prideful, what have you. It's letting the uncertain, that uncertainty then is what actually affects negative behavior that's contrary to the behavior that should be exhibited in light of the centrality of Christ. 
And I'd ventured to guess that I'm not the only one in the room who can, who can or has resonated with that. And as, re- as I've reflected on this text this week, I've heard the voice of Peter and God through Peter say, that is foolish. Why would I let the uncertainties of the present life produce behaviors that will destroy my soul? When God is calling me and you and all of us to focus on the one thing that is certain, more certain than death and taxes, and then let that certainty govern and inform our behavior. Why? It's foolish. Because when we devote ourselves to fixating on the certainty of Christ, we can't help but exercise the things in which Christ has given us for life and godliness. So we can kind of wrap this up. When, when, when Peter talks about waiting and kind of hastening for the day, which seem like two opposite things, you know, waiting and hastening, and kind of bring all these themes together, we see this waiting and haste is this, this activity in which we are propelled to good works, in which we are growing deeper into the created realities around us, in which we are pursuing the certainty that comes in Christ, reflecting on things that have been true in the beginning, and allowing us to then act well in the present, which is our waiting. Waiting well in the present and, and, and hastening towards that day then, is exhibiting the virtues that Peter lays out here. It's not some extraordinary thing. It's not some, you know, far-stretched thing. Just like uh, the supernatural is not just, uh, is not the only evidence of, of, of God upholding creation. No. It's growing in to, deeper into our humanity, praying that God's kingdom would come, and exercising the patience and love towards others that God has exercised towards us. And it is in this way then that we prepare for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, what Peter talks about in in verse 13. And that righteousness that dwells there is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that Peter says, right at the beginning of this letter, we have attained by faith. And we can be certain that that's going to happen. You can go to your groups.